As we move into the third millennium, it seems clear that the most significant event of the 20th, 20th century was World War II. To anyone who lived through it, or a baby more like myself who grew up in the shadow of the war, this seems obvious. As we go forward in time, however, young people may be less familiar with the vast scope of events that comprised a world at war. John H. Lanier, M.D., was a participant in two of the most important operations in World War II. His book, Normandy to Okinawa, A Navy Medical Officer's Diary and Overview of World War II, provides both personal reflections and a sharp analysis of the conflagration that involved the world's most powerful countries. He joins us today from his home in Minnesota. We're happy to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Dr. John Lanier. Thank you. Uh, I'm happy to be on your program. And, and well, we, uh, we're, we're glad to have you, Doctor. The filmmaker Ken Burns did a really fine documentary on World War II a couple years back, and when he spoke locally, he urged people to sit down with family members and have them tell their stories of the war. Did your family urge you to put your story into print? Yes, they did. I kept a daily diary throughout the war and uh, in four little books and uh, brought, brought them home. Uh, I, was, I got in the Navy in... 44, and I was out in the latter part of 46, and I was married in 48, and uh, 50 years later, those books were up in the shelf in the closet, and uh, our five daughters they were, had uh, many times asked me about the books and about my experience in the war, and I was busy practicing surgery, so I kind of always put it off, and finally my wife, uh, Evodia, and the five girls said, you got to do something. So I got a stenographer and uh, helped her translate the medical-type writing. Uh, so she typed it all up. And then I thought, well, if I would uh, read this, uh, some good histories of the war, I would, uh, and then could abstract it and write an uh, overview, as it were, or a synopsis of World War II, and embed the diary right into the synopsis and get maps. And, and I was a ship's photographer, so I could use photographs as well that I had taken, that it would be a much more worthwhile uh, project. So I did that, and it took me about eight years to uh, complete it. And finally it was completed, and uh, it was now published here recently, uh, that is uh, November of, uh, of uh, this past year, November of 07, actually. It's a year now since it was published by Beaver's Pond Press uh, in Edina, Minnesota. Well, I want to compliment you for your, this methodology that you, you, put, you put to work here. The synopsis is very good and does give someone a background to better understand what your diaries are telling them. Well, that's what I, I felt, that... Uh, Otherwise, you could read the diary, and I would say where it was and where we were, but uh, much more meaningful to have a history of the area that I, would, that I was in. And also, the other, there were four major theaters in the war, the uh, Atlantic European Theater and the Pacific Theater and the uh, Mediterranean, North African, and, and uh Italy and Sicily, that theater. And the one that people don't think much about is the, the Burma Chinese Theater. Right. And, uh, and that's where the uh, nationalist China, Chiang Kai-shek, 
and uh, was bottling Mao Zedong, the communist. At the same time, they both were fighting the Japanese, so that was quite a milieu, as it were, in uh, in China at the time. Yes. Well, Dr. Lanier, uh, you're keeping a diary, I understand, was somewhat frowned upon. You were bending the rules a bit to have kept the record that you did. Well, I found out after about five or six months, one of my friends aboard ship said, you know, uh, John, he said, you're not supposed to keep a diary. And I said, no, I didn't know that, because that hadn't been covered in Navy regs uh-huh. for me. And I hadn't read all the Navy regs. There's a whole book of them. And I thought, well, by this by this time I had it, and I was really dedicated. I knew what a what a, a huge uh, event this was in the world's history, much less my own history. So I decided to continue keeping it, and uh, I kept it hidden <laughs> and out of the way, so it it uh, wasn't really noticed by her, and no one else objected to it. Well, we're glad you did. We should note that you were a, a medical officer on board a ship, having completed most of a year as, as a medical intern. There's a lot of responsibility in the theater of war for someone without a lot of experience. It's really quite a difficult assignment. Well, that's, that's my problem. My problem was that I graduated from medical school in March of 1943. And then I went, uh, my goal was to become an internal medical doctor. I uh, interned at the city hospital in Boston on a Harvard service in, in straight internal medicine. Uh, we had a little, uh, I think we had a, about a month on the, in the emergency room where I had an opportunity to sew up some lacerations, but no uh, surgical experience. I, I always felt that I would most likely be in a Navy hospital or in a recruiting and induction station. And I, I didn't dream that I would be uh, in the Normandy invasion, thousands of injuries and terrible injuries. And uh, so when I found that out, I was, I, I was concerned not only about the invasion itself and, and whether I would survive it or our ship would survive it, but whether I would be up to being able to handle the type of injuries that would, I would be faced with. Well, Doctor, as, a, as, a, as an MD myself, it certainly made me sweat to think of what it would have been like to be in your position on that ship with all these surgical problems and only limited uh, uh, experience. It, uh, it's really quite something. On D-Day, they did put a surgeon on our LST. So, fortunately, a young man from uh, Kentucky, Gus Eith, his name was, and uh, he was a trained surgeon. And uh, we had corpsmen, of course, as well, paramedics. And uh, the night of D-Day, we did a surgery up in the wardroom, which is sort of the dining room uh, in the ship and yeah. on the dining room table. And uh, we opened a man's uh, soldier, a soldier's abdomen, shrapnel had gone through. But fortunately, it hadn't pierced the, the bowel. And I gave the anesthetic, and he did the surgery, and I assisted him at the surgery as well. But we had... Uh, six trips, and uh, the first one was on D-Day, and we were just uh, off the Omaha Beach. They didn't allow the LSTs to land on the beach on D-Day because they were afraid they couldn't afford to lose them. Right. They were too valuable. They're a long ship with a large tank deck, and uh, the uh, tanks and trucks and all were uh, put onto a uh, 
rhino bards, they called them. They were pontoons, sort of, that uh, they could put up to the bow of the ship and then drive them on. And the and the uh, the rhino bards had a couple of outboard motors that would take the uh, equipment into the beach. And then the soldiers were, were brought in on small boats. But uh, they were supposed to land at 8.30, June 6, 1944. But the beach was so hot, and the control of, of the, by the Germans of the beach with their 88s up embedded in the hills there, the Punk de Hoc, uh, kept everybody off the beach until around 2 or 3 in the afternoon. And finally, by a concerted uh, drive, they got on, but there were an awful lot of deaths, a lot of bodies floating in the water. Right. And they brought 27 wounded. And they they were wounded very badly, and you can hardly believe the injuries. One boy had half of his buttocks shot off. Another had shrapnel that had put out his eyes. Oh my! There was one arm hanging. It uh, it was really quite a sight. But we had uh, asthma, and we had type of blood, and uh, we had uh, sulfadiazine and penicillin even at that time. Right. And uh, lots of dressings. And we had good cornmeal, and so we, and we had morphine cigarettes. So we kept the injured comfortable and uh, kept them alive until we could get them back to England where they were then admitted to a hospital and cared for there. And I gather in some of your subsequent trips, you brought back some German uh, German, and even Japanese wounded as well. Well, that's, uh, yes. The third trip, we had 180 wounded, and this included 18 German prisoners of war. There were a couple of French uh, civilians, a couple of paratroopers, and there was a Japanese uh, prisoner. And we kept them on one side of the tank deck with a guard on them because some of the American soldiers were so angry that they would have tried to kill them. and uh, But we treated them uh, the same as we treated our own. That is, they got the dressings and the blood, whatever they needed, and we kept them uh, comfortable until we got them back. You can imagine what it would be like on a, on a stretcher, and, uh, and then uh, they were too sick to uh, use the urinal, and they were stuck to the stretchers with urine and blood. We have to roll them over and clean them up and dress the wounds and just keep them comfortable. We finally got them back then to uh, England, to uh, Southampton, Portsmouth, and uh, then again into a hospital. So it, uh, we were very busy during those trips. And I gather that quite a few of the ships like yours uh, were lost in that action. Yes, they were. In our group, we had Forty corpsmen that trained uh, up in uh, New York, Long Island, New York, uh, the Lido Beach area, at a camp, and uh, of, and, and uh, those forty, all of those forty were involved in the uh, Normandy invasion, and uh, I think there were about eight or nine of those LSTs that were sunk in the action. Our ship, our boat that I was on, LST number six was sunk uh, four months after I got off of it in the, uh, I think it was in the Channel, close to France. They struck a mine, and uh, when you hit a 
mine on an LST, it doesn't stay afloat long because the tank deck is so large compared to the the air chambers along the sides of the ship. Right. That it goes down fast. Well, there were an awful lot of details in your book, which is at the advantage of having a, a diary reporting on what's going on, things that historians maybe don't think to mention. Um that really give you a feel for what, what was going on. I was very surprised to learn that you were issued some confidential material on gas warfare, and many of the military thought that there might be a gas attack as you went into Normandy. That's correct. We really didn't know, but we were prepared for it, and we did have gas masks available. We're speaking with John H. Lanier, M.D., about his book, Normandy to Okinawa, a Navy medical officer's diary and overview of World War II. Uh, Doctor, another, another detail that surprised me, you were describing the occasional attacks on the Allied fleet in England before you departed across the Channel, something I, I didn't know much about, and you note that there were some smoke screens set up to reduce the visibility, and the smoke was actually quite noxious, and you were, you were quite worried about it. Yes. Well, that's correct. Uh, whenever there was a flight of Germans, we had radar. When German bombers came over, they would make smoke to cover the ships. That happened also in Okinawa. But that smoke was uh, uh, very uh, irritating to your lungs. It's nothing I heard, you hear much about in the other histories of the war. <laughs> no, <laughs> there's no details of war. Exactly. Another detail that really, really struck me as amazing in, in your book I'd seen nowhere else was the decision to go on, on, on June 6th, or I guess it was postponed one day from the 5th. But there was a 28-year-old captain in the Weather Bureau was informing Eisenhower and the commanders that he saw a break in the weather, and they had like a half an hour to make the decision. It's just, just an amazing story. Well, that's true. That is in other books, by the way. But uh, it is true that uh, the, uh, it was a, it was a Scotch uh, weatherman that had uh, found, coming from the Azores, uh, uh, what he considered to be a let-up in the wind and in the storm. Or he didn't know how long, but at least he thought 24 hours. And uh, and then uh, Eisenhower's headquarters were they had already canceled the trip for the 5th of June, and now they had to decide whether whether to take advantage of that to report on the reduced weather condition, uh, or whether to wait. And I think that wait would be at least two to three weeks before other conditions were right for the invasion. And it was a tough decision, but Eisenhower was finally left with it himself, and he said, we're going to do it. We've got to go. And then they gave, sent the word out to us in the harbor that it was on, and that was on the 5th. So then we started over on the night of the 5th of uh, June, 1944. And you also give Eisenhower quite a bit of credit for the fact that uh, some of the bombing commands were not necessarily under him, and he needed the full support of Roosevelt and Churchill to get everybody on the same page to go ahead for D-Day. Yes, that's true. The, uh, Churchill actually would have preferred coming up uh, what he called the soft underbelly of Europe. Roosevelt uh, was sort of in between, but uh, Marshall, General Marshall, and Eisenhower both that the shortest distance to Berlin from England was across the Channel. And even though everyone realized what a difficult task that would be, they felt that that's what they should and wanted to do, and that's what they did do, obviously. 
And then another personal note in your book, which I think as someone who hasn't ever you know been in combat, which is I think most of us would wouldn't wouldn't understand, is that your maximum apprehension came before the fighting started. There was a lot of uh, a lot of soul searching and a lot of you know gut wrenching uh, that went on before. But once the fighting started, actually things got in a way easier. Well, exactly. That's that's. Uh, I'm glad you brought that point up because when we were up there at our uh, uh, Lido Beach in Long Island, and we were being lectured by uh, Navy uh, uh, lieutenants uh, about how bad this one was going to be. The one man that was talking to us had been in the Salerno invasion in Italy, uh, which was a very hot beach, and he said that was just awful. And he said, this one is going to be a lot worse. And, you know, there are 40 of us doctors, and we'd had no experience with war, even had much time to think about it. And then we came to grips with our mortality, and we were all very apprehensive. I would wake up at night in a cold sweat around 3 a.m., and, and I couldn't sleep, and it was hard to breathe. and <laughs> It was a tough deal. Then when we, we marched to... Uh, uh, as a part of a show thing in New York City to go down to the, the docks where we were going to uh, leave from. We got on, I got on the LST-52. I went across the ocean on the LST-52 and uh, then got changed to the 6 for the invasion. But anyway, we got on the ship, and I saw the guys there, and uh, that terrible apprehension that had gripped me before uh, and now uh, just sort of disappeared. And uh, the skipper said, yeah, once you get into the thick of the battle, he said, it, uh, it gets a lot better. So we were heartened by that. And uh, although we had periods of uh, actual fear from time to time, there wasn't that daily uh, apprehension. Right. So uh, it's like stage fright. Once you get going, you're okay, but <laughs> until it happens... Yeah. It, uh, you're, you're, you're scared. Well, by early May of 1945, the hostilities in Europe were, were over, but that was certainly not the case with the war in the Pacific, and, and, you, and you next found yourself uh, being sent there, accompanying a rather precarious cargo headed into battle. Well, that's right. They, after the, the sixth trip, as I mentioned earlier, that was June 24th, and I was sent to uh, Upper New York State um, Syracuse, Buffalo, and uh, Rochester, and I did work in recruiting and induction stations for a few months, and it was sort of, a, I think, a rest period, because then in December uh, of 44, I was uh, sent to uh, a um, place where they, they had supplies for uh, medical supplies for the commissioning of a uh, ship. Yeah, a ship that was just being commissioned down in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. So I was there for three weeks picking out medical supplies for this ship. And then we commissioned the ship, and then we went through the Panama Canal. It was the AKA-103, and that was an attack cargo ship. Uh, and I was the, to be the physician on the ship, and not only the, for that ship, but for several other ships as well. Well, we then sailed to uh, Hawaii, where we took on a load of 6,500 tons of ammunition. Oh, boy. And then we discovered that our, after we got to sea, they never tell you anything until you're out in sea, and they said, we're going to be in uh, 
for delivering this to Okinawa, for the Battle of Okinawa. We got there about the uh, first part of June, I think it was the 10th or 11th of June, and the Okinawa battle started on April 1st of 45 and went to uh, June 22nd, and it was a very tough battle. Uh, we went to the harbor at the southwest part of, of Okinawa, uh, right opposite the city of Naha. Uh, was the Naha Harbor. There were thousands of ships there. We had this ammunition, and we had to unload that from the hold and deliver it into the shore, and that was done on small boats. We had There were 35 small boats, Higgins boats, that were assigned to this project, and it took two and a half weeks of unloading to get all that ammunition out and onto the beach. And the whole while you were at risk of, uh, of attack by kamikazes. And that was that was our scare then. The uh, we had radar, of course, and when a kamikaze was seen coming in, uh, they'd shout bogey, uh, bogey, and uh, make smoke, make smoke, and then they'd start the smoke making process, going around and around the ship with this heavy smoke, so that the Japanese uh, uh, pilots wouldn't be able to see it, see the ship. And so we had some. We had one close call. One night, the kamikaze uh, friends of mine topside. I was not topside at the time. It was 11 o'clock at night. And two of my friends were at topside, and they said this kamikaze came so close that they could touch the, they could have touched the wheel. And then it uh, landed about 100 yards or less away from our ship, but fortunately did not detonate. Uh, then they sent a boat out to pick up the pilot. And he was put in the brig. I, I didn't examine him. I didn't see him. Huh. But uh, that was a very, very close call. Well, Dr. Lanier, I was not aware of the fact that in the final days of the war, the Germans also used suicide attacks, something, something else I learned from your book. Yes, they did. They were, they were ramming uh, planes with other planes, Messerschmitts, and wow. uh, literally uh, jamming them in whenever they could, and they were suicide. They were suicide planes. They were quite desperate at the end of the war. They had the V-1 and the V-2 rockets. The V-1s were not so bad, and they weren't as large, and they weren't as fast. But the V-2s, they were, they weighed, let's see, they were 46 feet long, weighed 14 tons with heavy explosives, and they were sent across the, uh, the channel from, uh, I think it was from Holland, actually, or to England. And they were, you know, totally random. They just hit whatever they hit. Right. Well, you headed home back in July of 45. The war was not over. You expected to go back, and the news came that an atomic bomb had been dropped. It was an immense relief to you, and you note that there was no ambivalence at the time over whether it should have been used. Absolutely. We were up the Columbia River between Astoria and Portland, near little town Longview, Oregon, and uh, we were now loading ammunition We had again, and we had 900 tons uh, loaded by this time, and then the word came out the next day, I think it was on the radio, that uh, the uh, U.S. had dropped an atom bomb on Hiroshima, and, uh, and then three days later on the ninth, the second bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. And then three days later, the uh, Japanese emperor on the radio surrendered. And we were really, we were so happy, you can't believe it.
We got into town, and people were honking and running around. And it, it was just amazing. And because we knew we were going to be in the invasion of Japan, and that would have really been a very bad, very tough deal because they still had uh, 10,000 planes, and they had like 2 million soldiers, and all the civilians were trained to fight. They were supposed to kill at least one soldier before they were killed themselves. And all of the prisoners of war would have been uh, executed. So it was, uh, the atom bomb for us was a blessing. We never, when Roosevelt died, you know, on, on uh, I think it was April 12, 1945, and when Truman was sworn in as president, well, we just thought, holy man, this guy will never be able to handle a situation <laughs> this big, because we always thought of him as a quiet little haberdasher. Uh-huh. Well, anyway, and he didn't even know we had the atom bomb when he was vice president. So they filled him in. Then the uh, Potsdam, uh, when they had the meeting outside of Berlin in 1945, both uh, uh, Stalin and Churchill both said, absolutely, you've got to drop the bomb. And, hit, and Truman had no doubt in his mind that he was going to drop the bomb, which he did. And uh, well, we really loved Truman after that. Well... Dr. Lanier, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. I want to I recommend your book very highly to our listeners. Again, the title is Normandy to Okinawa, a Navy Medical Officer's Diary and Overview of World War II. And they can get the book on Amazon.com and also uh, the, uh, uh, there's a website, uh, www.normandytookinawa, all small letters, .com. Well, I'm sure many of our listeners are going to want to do exactly that. Uh, I, I recommend it very highly. Very good. Well, thanks a lot, All Douglas. Right. Thank you.